Welcome back to Arbitrary and Capricious, the podcast of the Seaboyd and Gray Center for the Study of the Administrative State at George Mason University's Antonin Scalia Law School. This is your host, the Center's Director, Adam White, and I'm joined by a special guest this week. It's Professor Jeffrey Pojanowski of Notre Dame Law School. Jeff, welcome to Arbitrary and Capricious. It's great to be here. Well, the reason why we invited Jeff on for today's episode is because of a fascinating article that he published earlier this year in the Harvard Law Review. It's titled Neoclassical Administrative Law. We're going to walk through the the arguments that he makes in this article. Just by way of background, this is a paper that uh, Jeff was scheduled to present at the annual uh, Gray Lecture that we had scheduled for March with Justice Gorsuch and others that was postponed due to the coronavirus outbreak. And in fact, Jeff presented an earlier version of the paper at a Gray Center uh, roundtable a couple of years ago. I've been impressed by this paper from the start, and it's just such a pleasure to get to invite Jeff on to talk about it. So, Jeff, the title, Neoclassical Administrative Law, we'll talk a bit about what you're contrasting it with, but just in a nutshell, what is neoclassical administrative law, and why are you writing about it right now? Great. Well, um, I, first off, uh, it was wonderful to be able to present the paper. Uh, I think, I guess, in two in two early versions uh, at your center, um, and yeah. the comments I got there were were, were really really helpful uh, and helped make help make the paper uh, what it was. Um, so thanks for that. Um, I guess my in a nutshell, my the the theory of uh, it, neoclassical administrative law uh, is is a theory of judicial review uh, of administrative action. Um, and in a nutshell, it's, it, it's, it's approach, uh, draws a pretty sharp distinction, uh, between, between law and policy, uh, on judicial review of questions of law, uh, this approach rejects, uh, any strong form of deference, uh, to agency interpretations of law along the lines of Chevron or something like that. Um, on judicial review of questions of policy, uh, where questions where, there's no law to apply, or the law at best uh, kind of frames the outer limits of, of what an agency can do. Uh, this approach is much more uh, much more deferential uh, than, or at least substantially more deferential than um, kind of received doctrinal wisdom about review of, of, of agency policy making discretion. It's much closer to something like rational basis review that you would have uh, in uh, in constitutional law, and. I think one thing that makes the, the, this uh, approach possible is, and this is an implicit uh, point here, is um, it is uh, much uh, much more modest with respect to uh, constitutional review of, uh, of 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 delegations of of administrative authority. Um, and so, although it's quite formalist with respect to its understanding of legal interpretation uh, and the divide between law and policy, uh, it departs from some of its formalist cousins. Uh, with respect to um, the constitutionalization uh, of administrative law, and, and in particular, uh, searching scrutiny of uh, delegations of, of policy-making authority uh, to agencies. Uh, now, you say you say that's right. You say at the end of the article, uh, it turns down the constitutional temperature mm-hmm. um, by by avoiding some of these. Um, before we sort of walk through how a, a lot of what you just summarized, why don't we? situated against the backdrop of what you're contrasting it with, because your article starts by sort of, and, and you, you're very clear early on that what you're talking about are sort of ideal types, and of course, these are sort of broad generalizations, but they're not inaccurate generalizations of, of what came before, and then you start, you know, at the very beginning, 
150 years ago about sort of the classical notion of the distinction between uh, you know English style law, our common law heritage, and then sort of French style admin, you know administrative law or administrative power. But of course, America adopts a great amount of administrative power. Not long thereafter, uh, A.B. Dicey mm-hmm. makes that comment, and you sort of come to the modern period or in recent decades, and you identify three basic schools or ideal types um, that you you sort of frame neoclassical administrative law as a, as a successor to or a, a, a new competitor with, and they are administrative supremacy, administrative skepticism, and administrative pragmatism. Um, could you just... Maybe we'll just walk through those one by one, just in a few lines. You know, how would you describe each of those? What's administrative, the school of, of administrative supremacy? So administrative supremacy um, basically views uh, the administrative state uh, as uh, a necessary and perhaps uh, salutary uh, engine of modern governance. Um, that uh, modern separation of powers, um, uh, require something like the energy and the flexibility uh, of the administrative state uh, to make governance work uh, in, in a complex society. Uh, and the role for lawyers uh, in that context and, and courts um, is to basically patrol at, be- at most the bounds of legal rationality uh, and get out of the way. So on questions of law, uh, they're going to be highly deferential to agencies' interpretations. On questions of policy, thin rationality review, give agencies substantial flexibility in crafting and uh, shaping their, uh, their procedure uh, and, uh, and their review of facts. Uh, so this would go back to, uh, in, in the American context, um, uh, starting at the Progressive Era, moving up to the New Deal Era, um, you could think of, of Landis uh, or Douglas or Frankfurter, uh, where, the, uh, where, where the idea was the administrative agencies get broad delegations of power uh, with generalized principles, and it's their job to to implement them, and not just uh, implement uh, Congress's policy goals, but to shape the policy goals. Uh, and the role of courts is to largely uh, get out of the way, uh, uh, unless the, unless there's truly arbitrary action, and you should be pretty hesitant to find uh, arbitrary action uh, there. That's one strain of uh, of thought that we have um, in administrative law uh, well, and theory just, We'll just yeah. pause on that for a second. In terms of its sort of current practitioners, mm-hmm. um, maybe the most, the starkest example is our friend Adrian Vermeule, yes. um, and his 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 recent book Laws Abnegation, um, and and his many other writings on administrative law. You also cite you know, recent articles, uh, well, a recent article by Jillian Metzger, her own Harvard Law Review article from 2017, mm-hmm. um, 1930. She called it 1930s Redux: The Administrative State Under Siege, and the work of John Michaels, his book. Uh, constitutional coup, privatization's threat to American Republic. Yes. The second, the second school you identify is what you call administrative. And by the way, we'll return to Adrian maybe at the end of our conversation, mm-hmm. since he's uh, written a, a already written a response to your piece. Uh, the next school you identify is administrative skepticism. Uh, who are the administrative skeptics? Well, you know. Leading figure number one here is, of course, uh, our friend Philip Hamburger, right. uh, who believes the uh, the administrative state is uh, is unlawful. Um, and here uh, you're returning to a, um, I guess, a highly, uh, I guess, a highly classical or not neoclassical, but old fashioned classical uh, understanding uh, of law. Uh, law can exist essentially in um, uh, in in, 
there, or there's there's two sharp divisions of the law. Uh, the legislature, uh, a legislature must create the law, and the court's job is to apply the law. Uh, and the administrative state is kind of an excluded middle. Uh, it, it's uh, letting the administrative state make law uh, violates uh, uh, the, the authority of the legislature um, and uh, giving them the authority to uh, interpret legal texts with uh, some finality violates the role of, of the courts. Uh, and so there's very little place for the administrative state, except for maybe um, you know, narrow minister, minister, ministerial duties uh, pursuant to um, very tightly drawn uh, delegations. So you have very, uh, you have no deference on, on questions of law. Uh, agencies are bound by uh, law to follow their own procedures, and ideally those procedures should be crafted with detail uh, by uh, by legislatures. Uh, and any delegation of policymaking discretion uh, to agencies would be would be an unconstitutional uh, delegation uh, of legislative power. Uh, and so that would so the lead the, you know, again the leading example here, of course, would be um, uh, Philip Hamburger. Um, so that that would be the the administrative skeptic, and he's you know he's the ideal type, although it comes um, in varying degrees uh, or, uh, with respect to the modern I guess we call it right of center or conservative libertarian uh, critique of the administrative state. Um, uh, so uh, Hamburger is the ideal type, but much of the flavor or, ske or, or skepticism or discomfort uh, with the administrative state you see with perhaps uh, Roberts uh, Roberts writings, uh, Chief Justice Roberts writings. Um, being skeptical of Chevron or just you know, Justice Thomas uh, and the late Justice Scalia critiquing uh, deference to agency interpretations of of law, um, draw on this uh, this vein of skepticism about the administrative state. Jeff, as you walk through some of the sort of the people that that, that personify this approach, and and you list some of them in the article too, I was really struck by the list. Um, as you already said, you mentioned Philip Hamburger and Gary Lawson, who's a longstanding critic of uh, modern administrative law, Theodore Lowy, David Schoenbrod, Bruce Fronin, and, and George Carey. And I'm struck by that list because it's really not what we think of as traditional administrative law scholars, right? This is definitely uh, an out, a sort of an outsider critique of modern administrative law. Um, in fact, that was one of the responses that a lot of people made to Philip Hamburger when his book came out was that um, he was criticizing something that he wasn't sort of fully versed in. Um, and I think a lot of those response, a lot of the critics of his criticism sort of missed the point, right? That he was criticizing it from the outside precisely because a lot of the people on the inside of the field had lost the perspective of the limits of their field. Yeah, I, I think that's right. Um, I think what what Hamburger and the the, the fellow skeptics are 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 trying to do is to uh, shift the discussion. Uh, there's an argument like, look, I don't I don't care about learning the niceties and intricate doctrinal details and workings of a project that you know I think is illegitimate. Uh, and to criticize me for not knowing that is uh, is to miss the point. I'm trying to change the conversation. Yeah. Uh, and, and with some respect, at least with respect to uh, Chevron deference or our deference, which is the deference to agencies' interpretations of their own regulations. Uh, there's been some success there, and uh, and, and to my and admittedly to my surprise, um, last term uh, there there were four votes um, uh, to revisit the the non delegation doctrine uh, yeah. uh, uh, or interest in the uh, revisiting the non delegation doctrine, which is not something I thought uh, I would see. So they they are making uh, they are making some headway. 
uh, with these arguments that people people often talk about how original used to be originalism and constitutional interpretation used to be off the wall, but now it's on the wall. Uh, and there's a sense in which Lawson and Hamburger et al. are uh, working to put these ideas uh, on the wall. And within the court, uh, you mentioned you know Roberts's opinion in City of Arlington and elsewhere, but really the the two leading sort of um, figures of, of administrative skepticism on the court are, are clearly Justice Thomas and Justice Gorsuch, right? Yes, correct. correct. Okay, so the third category, and then we'll move on to, to your argument, but the third category is administrative pragmatism. I mean, pragmatism sounds great. What's uh, Who could be against pragmatism? Exactly. Who's against being practical? <laughs> um, and, 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 and I say in the paper, uh, this is by far the the largest group. Uh, this is this is mainstream administrative law scholarship, uh, and you could do reasonably well um, on an admin law exam uh, by studying doctrine that reflects uh, this, this administrative law pragmatism. Now, its positions. I'll lay out its positions, and I'll talk about its theoretical underpinnings briefly. Uh, the position. It's. It's. Um. I guess it's kind of a Goldilocks uh, approach to administrative law. Uh, you will have deference on questions of law but only subject to certain tests. Uh, uh, th- there are certain kinds of interpretations uh, that, uh, that, that get deference, and they have to pass some sort of threshold. So you have a, a presumption of deference, but it's, uh, it's calibrated or checked by certain either rule of law tests or process tests. Um, and so you have deference, but not all the time and not when it's improper. Um, and on the other hand, with respect to review of agency policy judgments, the arbitrary and capricious test, which... Um, the, the eponymous name of this uh, of this podcast um, is yes. There's a strong pr- uh, presumption in favor of deferring to agency policy making judgments uh, because you know agencies are better equipped to do this than courts. Um, but uh, there's still going to be a ba- there's still going to be a check uh, that's going to be thicker than rational basis review that you'd have in uh, in, co- in constitutional law. You want to make sure that the agency undertook reasoned decision making, and the courts are there uh, to provide. Um, to provide uh, to provide a check there, and so one way of uh, and, and this will tie the tie the three together. Um, so you can imagine that a lot of this goes on the, the distinction between law, uh, uh, legislative, uh, judi- legal supremacy, uh, supremacy of laws, so supremacy of the courts, uh, and legislative supremacy. Uh, and one way of of looking at uh, so that's the cla- what I call the classic Dicean dichotomy: courts. Uh, at the at the apex of interpreting the law, the legislature at the apex of creating the law, uh, and the administrative state you know, has no space in between. Uh, the the administrative skeptic uh, returns to that classic vision. Uh, courts are there to in- interpret the law. Legislatures there to make it. Uh, there's nothing in between. Uh, the administrative uh, supremacist. Uh, sidelines the courts, diminishes the roles of the courts, and shifts the legis- uh, shifts the legislative power, or at least allows the legislature to shift the legislative power uh, to the administrative agencies, and the courts get out of the way. Um, whereas the pragmatist seeks a reconciliation between these uh, two opposing views. Um, courts, again, in Chevron, at step one, if the, if the statute's clear, uh, the agency doesn't get to decide. So there's a presumption in favor of the courts, uh, although there, there's, there's room for deference. Um, on the other hand, uh, agencies are given presumptive legislative authority with respect to delegation, but we bring the rule of law into administrative decision-making through the courts. So it seeks to, rather than have this sharp dichotomy between legislative author- the role of the courts and the role of legislative bodies, uh, it seeks to kind of integrate 
uh, the pragmatist seeks to integrate both impulses uh, or both kind of tendencies or values uh, within the administrative state with the court playing the role as kind of the conductor of the orchestra here. So within the court, this would be people like Justice Breyer, maybe? Absolutely. Justice yeah. Breyer uh, is, uh, is you know, the, or, exactly, Mead, you know, the Mead decision uh, is a perfect example of this. Um, uh, yeah, so yeah, Justice Breyer's the guy there. Also, Kagan, you know, and Kagan too, probably. Yeah, well, that's, that was going to be my next was that you mentioned, you know, Justice Roberts in the previous category of skepticism with respect to his view on Chevron, but he mm-hmm. joined, uh, Chief Justice Roberts joined, and we should mention you, you clerked on the DC circuit for Chief Justice Roberts uh, yes. before, before he was Chief Justice Roberts. Um, but, but on, in the in another case, the more recent case, the Kaiser case uh, involving a judicial deference to agency interpretations of their own rules, uh, Chief Justice Roberts joins Justice Kagan's majority opinion, sort of a mend it, don't end it approach <laughs> to to deference, and that struck me as sort of a quintessential pragmatism uh, opinion too, right? Along alongside Mead, or do you, or do, you, do you think? Well, yeah, you know, I'm not I'm not so sure. Um, so I think it's, I think it's pragmatic in the sense of judicial politics. Uh, and this is where the chief is an institutionalist. This is outside of administrative law. Um, I think, um, I think what the chief saw in Kagan's modification or, or here's what I saw, uh, with Kagan's modification. And this perhaps could explain what the chief was thinking, uh, because I don't, I don't have his, uh, his views on this, but, um, with Kagan's modification of, of our deference, um, I think a, a, a lower court that is skeptical uh, of of deference to agency interpretations of their own regulations um, has ammunition and sanction uh, to depart from them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and I think Gorsuch talks about this a bit in his um, separate concurrence. Where he talks about there should be kind of a zombie hour uh, mm-hmm. walking through the courts of appeals. Uh, and 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 one way of looking at the chief's uh, opinion. Uh, and his reason for joining Justice Kagan is like, look, there's pr- there's very little difference as a practical matter um, between what we'd be doing under Kaiser uh, as opposed to what we'd be doing uh, under overruling hour, especially if overruling hour involves something kind of like Skidmore, uh, you know, maybe slight thumb on the scale uh, for the agency in ties. And so to the extent the chief doesn't want to blow up stare decisis, he's like, this is this is good enough. Yeah. Uh, and uh so, but again, uh, but I, I wouldn't characterize the chief as a as a full as a full as a full throated skeptic um, uh, on on administrative power. He's he's in, in, in a sense he's very much like the court, uh, in the sense that he the court in the past five to ten years has sounded un, numerous alarms uh, in administrative law about the separation of powers, uh, great pans to the sec- separation of powers and the classical understanding of law. But the, out, the actual doctrinal outputs are quite modest readjustments. Yeah, um, and uh, the, and I think Kaiser is of a piece with that. Well, just one last question, sort of looking in the rearview mirror before we turn to you know look forward to, to your argument. It seems, it's sort of an unfair question because it's anachronistic. But of those three categories, is there any of them that you would slot Justice Scalia into? And I ask not just because he's the namesake of my law school, but also mm-hmm. because he really was a leading figure of um, of administrative law and the sort of the Reagan era 
rethink of administrative law mm -hmm. from, you know, even before he was on the D.C. Circuit and when he was writing in the late 70s all the way through his time in the court, he was, you know, a real center of gravity in American administrative law. Does he fit into any of these three categories? I mean, I think if there's one that he could fit closest into, I think he would be, uh, I guess, conservative is probably not the right word, but uh, on the conservative end of, pra of, of pragmatism. Uh, he yeah. was... He was a staunch defender and exponent of Chevron deference uh, in the 80s uh, from his time in the D.C. Circuit uh, onto the Supreme Court, where he'd continually fight uh, Justice Breyer uh, and Justice Stevens, who sought to rein in uh, Chevron or, or domesticate Chevron uh, a little bit. Uh, and uh, so I think he I think he's a he's a and there's some indication towards the end of his end of his judicial career. He's becoming more skeptical on questions of deference of law, mm -hmm. uh, and his approach to arbitrary and capricious review became a little bit more strong uh, or a little bit more skeptical of, uh, of agency action. So maybe there is a shift afoot, but I, I, would, I would classify him as a, uh, as a pragmatist uh, with a caveat that his approach to um, legal interpretation, uh, his approach to step one at Chevron, was quite rigorous. So he, yeah. had, the, he had the broadest understanding of when Chevron could apply. Uh, he didn't want these... Like, tests for when we apply Chevron or not. He likes rules, right? Um, he, he wants a broad Chevron, but it would be his step one, his decision about whether the uh, statute speaks clearly was one of the most rigorous ones. Uh, so he might even be a uh, proto-neoclassicist, perhaps. <laughs> a paleo-neoclassicist. <laughs> yeah, uh, for whatever it's worth for our audience's sake, I totally agree with your, your assessment of where Justice Scalia slots into this. Um, now, in sort of in Justice Scalia's wake, I guess that was a Ron Cass article in Nino's wake, um, administrative law, at least especially among conservatives, has had sort of a, a rethink. Conservatives, by the way, it means a couple of things here, right? It means the the political conservatives who are advocating for administrative reform through legislation. Mm -hmm. There are textualists and originalists who have been leading the call for a rethink of deference um, and, and so on. Um, but in the current moment, there is, as you say, this seems to be this emergence of this new balance that's been struck. And it's interesting, by the way, you, you call it neoclassical and not neopragmatic, because mm -hmm. there might be a little bit of, of, of pragmatism in there. Maybe we'll get back to that. I don't know. Mm -hmm. um, but what you see is in some ways a, a return to old things, but um, neo in the sense that it's sort of shaped by what we've learned, by what we've all been through. So why don't you, could you maybe just describe, um, and we'll, we'll walk through the different parts of it, but just at a very high level, you know, describe how you think this has emerged out of the current moment, because it really does seem to be bound up in 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 the last few years of rethink of administrative law. Yeah, so I think um, part part of what's going on in, uh, is there's been a revival of interpretive formalism uh, in at least large chunks of uh, American legal thought in the judiciary uh, in and in some parts of uh, of the academy. Uh, this comes along with the revival of textualism. Uh, in statutory interpretation, the revival of originalism uh, in, um, in, in constitutional interpretation, uh, the emphasis on, on rule formalism uh, uh, more generally. And implicit in this is, um, is the notion that um, the separation between law and policy, uh, between legal interpretation uh, and policymaking, um, is, is and should be sharper 
than what um, kind of, what kind of the received wisdom, uh, the kind of casual Amer- uh, legal realism uh, that characterizes uh, American legal thought. Uh, and in, in the administrative law context, this uh, has a couple a couple payouts. Um, first, it, it gives rise to skepticism about agency interpretation or deference to agencies' interpretations of statutes uh, and regulations. So the, the functional justification for deference is, well, look, uh, or the theoretical justification for deference could be, look, um, in close, interesting, hard cases where reasonable people disagree, uh, there's no law to be found. This is a policy judgment. Um, and if we're going to do policy judgments, why have courts do that um, and you know, have agencies do that because they're politically accountable and they have the, they have the expertise uh, to, to, make, uh, uh, to, to make those calls? Um, but if you reject that premise, uh, if you think, at least uh, in many hard cases, uh, differences of legal judgment don't reduce um, to uh, policy preferences or policy choices, uh, that move becomes a little bit skeptical. And here's where we can link Hamburger's work in law and judicial duty uh, to a skepticism of, uh, of of administrative deference. Uh, he thinks legislative, uh, you know, the, the, excuse me, the the courts uh, act as a matter of judi- of of, of uh, of finding law as opposed to legislative will. Um, and so that gives rise to the un, uh, skepticism of, of interpretation on, uh, on questions of, uh, of law. Um, now if you, if you shift, and this is where I'm probably a little bit more pragmatic, if you shift this at the constitutional register, um, it perhaps gives rise to more deep concerns uh, about, the, about the administrative state. If you think uh, the original understanding of the Constitution or the original meaning or the original intention of the Constitution uh, is very hard to reconcile uh, with the administrative state that we have. And again, that's a big if. There's lots mm-hmm. of people arguing about this. Um, uh, you are going to become less comfortable accepting the ordinary machine of governance that, that's, that's, um, uh, that's been operating since the progressive, uh, at least the progressive, uh, the progressive era. You're going to be skeptical of delegations of agency policy-making authority. You'll be skeptical of agencies to find facts uh, when there otherwise could be uh, jury findings. Uh, you'll be skeptical of agencies being able to craft their own uh, their uh, their own procedures. Uh, and so that formalist approach to interpret, interpreting the Constitution uh, gives rise uh, uh, to this kind of, this broader skepticism of the administrative state. You know, in a way, it's sort of ironic. So much of Justice Scalia's own approach of, to administrative law, as you mentioned just a moment ago, it hinged on, or it was, it was premised upon his his textualism, right? Mm-hmm. And and sort of the same year, 80, 80, 88, 89, when he's writing his articles, his real seminal articles on originalism as the lesser evil and the rule of law as the law of rules, he's also writing his famous Duke Law Journal article on Chevron, mm-hmm. really calling for deference, but deference... Um, that's connected to a strong textual anchor in, in, in a textualist anchor in Chevron step one. And so there's an irony here, I think, that on the one hand, um, neoclassical administrative law is emerging because of the increasing success of Chevron, or sorry, of textualism, right, um, as sort of a leading force in, in, administ- or in, in law generally. Um, at the same time, uh, Scalia sort of pivoted towards the end of his life or his career away from Chevron, in part because it just wasn't holding. It seemed 
I mean, nobody will never know until his papers are opened. But it mm-hmm. seemed that he might have been sort of flinching on Chevron or throwing in the towel on Chevron because the parts that he liked just weren't holding together in cases, right? Like that, that nobody else was a Scalia um, Chevron guy. And mm-hmm. so the the Chevron that we actually had in the world was was much messier and much less coherent than the sort of textualist version of of uh, of Chevron Scalia. Like that's a big digression. I don't mean to go no. off on that, but no, I th- I think there's something to this, and I think um, I think we one way of kind of reading um, the arc of Scalia, uh, and here I'm going to kind of claim him perhaps. Um, as a neoclassical administrative lawyer. By the way, what's new? So, classic. The classicism is it's it's classical about uh, the separation between law and policy. That there is a meaningful distinction, at least for most time, for most purposes, or at least it's good to aspire for a meaningful distinction. Mm-hmm. It's classical in that sense. It's also classical about its understanding of the judicial role. Uh, that courts are not very good uh, in uh, at uh, or or it's less legitimate for courts to be engaging in the policy that, uh, deliberations that agencies and legislatures do. It's classical in that sense. It's neo in the sense that it uh, transposes those commitments um, to uh, to operate in a world where the, we have the administrative state and it's unlikely to go away anytime soon. So how can one be a classical formalist uh, in the context in which we have the administrative state either as a fact that we can't get rid of or or as something that's possible possibly necessary uh, for uh, for modern governance? And here's where I can claim perhaps claim Scalia uh, as a neoclassicist. Um, let's think about how, um, uh, how how he would think about Chevron uh, and the distinction between step one uh, and step two. Of course, step one is 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 the is is the statute clear? Has Congress spoken clearly to this? If so, the court governs, right? Um, and if you look at Scalia's approach to Chevron, lots and lots of cases get resolved at step one because and this kind of goes to his trust in uh, and kind of formalist craft. Um, there's lots of questions that have better than worse answers. Um, and depending on how, how clear is clear or what counts as clear enough, um, if you do a lot of the work and you feel reasonably confident that even if it's a 60-40 question, you're pretty confident that it's 60-40 and the distinction between 60 and 40 doesn't turn on whether you like the result, but what you, where you think the materials point. Um, if you're that kind of, if you're that kind of, if that's your kind of Chevron, um, you know, so step two is going to look very different. Uh, is step is step two about whether or not you know, reasonable lawyers could disagree about this or whether there's really, in fact, not much law to apply. Uh, and what's been, what's been left over is a policy judgment. Um, and if we look at it that way, um, you know, so one way of kind of clearing up the underbrush of Chevron is what goes on step two. Are, mm-hmm. are, we, are, we, de- are we kicking to agencies uh, reasonable dispute over law- lawyers' questions? Um, or are we kicking questions to agencies that courts feel like, I've got, no te- I've got no materials to work with, you know, be reasonable, public interest, um, that kind of stuff. Uh, and, and if you're going to be deferential on that, um, that kind of recapitulates the uh, kind of the, the classical division and separation of powers. Lawyers' questions are resolved at step one. The step one is really, really strong. All that's left at step two is this kind of arbitrary and capricious stuff. We're going to be quite deferential. Uh, and that's the, that's the neoclassical uh, um, lawyers' approach to these, to these questions. Question, on questions of arbitrary and capriciousness, there's probably not much law to apply, and as long as they stay within the confines of the law, you're going to defer. And furthermore, and this goes back to Scalia again, 
we're not going to strike a lot of those things down on non-delegation grounds. Scalia was famous, uh, uh, with the exception of uh, uh, kind of his dissent in Mistretta, was famous for saying the non-delegation doctrine is largely non-justiciable, right. uh, and it's not judicially manageable, um, and so we're not going to mess with that. Uh, and so I think a neoclassicist would be someone who's got a very, very strong step one uh, on, on, on questions of legal interpretation. When there's no real law to apply, um, you're going to be very deferential, uh, and you're not going to strike down those pockets of, of discretion uh, on constitutional grounds because you think it's, you know, it's probably not manageable, uh, at least for the courts, uh, to, to, to police those questions. Yeah, although Justice Scalia, he could from time to time— um, get to step two and still be pretty tough, right? The, maybe the best example yes. is utility or regulatory group, where yes. where they say the Clean Air Act is is ambiguous. But even if it, that provision is ambiguous, but even though it's ambiguous, the EPA's um, interpretation still cross the line into unreasonableness. That's true. So that's true. I, I would be more. I would. I would probably be more forgiving. Uh, of agencies on those kinds of questions than Justice Scalia would. Yeah. Now, forgive me, you might have explained this or cited in the footnotes and I missed it, but maybe another good example of where this fits into current judges is is Justice Kavanaugh, who, by the way, it seems to me, and I think this bears out in, in some of your citations, of all the members of the court, he might be the closest to uh, the neoclassic, neoclassical position, maybe. I, um, I, 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 th- I think that's right. So his... His extrajudicial writing um, is skeptical of Chevron, or at least threshold ambiguity tests to decide whether we defer. Right? right. He's he's not he's not a fan of uh, of, of deference on law. But one of the interesting payouts of, uh, of of this neoclassical approach I'm advocating is being textualist uh, about the Administrative Procedure Act. Right. We yeah. have we have law governing administrative uh, administrative procedures, governing judicial review. Um, maybe there's something there to look at, right? And if you're a formalist who thinks we should look at, if you're a formalist who believes in legislative supremacy, we should look at those kinds of things, right? Uh, and one of those things uh, is the uh, the procedures uh, the agencies need to go through for rulemaking. Uh, and part of the pragmatist um, reconciliation of the rule of law and, and, and supremacy of administrative agencies um, has not been increasing review of agency policy judgments, but uh, perhaps imposing, depending on your point of view is the right word, but creating additional common law procedures that agencies need to go through when they make law. Um, And these procedures, which are not obviously linked to the text of the Administrative Procedure Act. Uh, And um, an interesting, one of my favorite, uh, or I guess one of the the central Kavanaugh opinions for my paper to link him up with with this approach. It's a, it's a separate opinion he wrote uh, in a case called uh, uh, American Radio Relay League, uh, mm-hmm. ham operators suing <laughs> uh, uh, about uh, about regulations. And he he writes separately saying, look, um, a lot of the things we're requiring agencies to do when they go through notice and comment um, are not required by the APA. Yeah. Uh, and we should we should revisit this. Uh, and the APA perhaps is a, is a compromise that we need to reject the limits. And here and here's a circumstance in which formalism, which usually is associated with kind of anti-government stuff, uh, says agencies get more flexibility here. They don't have to jump through as many hoops uh, to make regulations if the APA doesn't require them to do that. Uh, and so that's a sense in which uh, Kavanaugh. Justice Kavanaugh may be um, an avatar of uh, of neoclassical administrative law, given you know combining his interpretive formalism uh, with his willingness to extend that 
uh, formalist textualism to the Administrative Procedure Act uh, in ways that um, actually free agencies uh, to, um, to, to, to do more. Yeah, and as you mentioned a moment ago, uh, Kavanaugh's view of Chevron sort of slots into this well, too. And his, his, his own, oh, everybody's writing for the Harvard Law Review, and his own piece for the Harvard Law Review a couple of years ago on statutory uh, interpretation, he, uh, he, he said that one of the problems with Chevron is it depends upon this strange line between an ambiguous and an unambiguous statute. And that really mm-hmm. seems like a strange test for a judge to apply. But when you reframe it, when you reframe Chevron along the ways that you suggest here, and others have too, right, saying that step two really is about arbitrary and capricious review, mm-hmm. right? There's, there's, it's, it's creating, it's leaving space for policymaking judgment. Mm-hmm. Um, well, that might be something then that Kavanaugh could abide, right? A view yes. that, that step one is the textual interpretation part of it, Um Step two is, well, if there isn't clear law to apply, then there's room for agencies to make policy. Of course, I think the skeptics would say, actually, if you get to step two, then you probably have a non-delegation problem. Exactly. Um, but, but, but again, the point of, of the approach you're sketched out is, 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 is not to you know, make that argument per se, but rather mm-hmm. think through about policy space. So in your framework then, or in this neoclassical framework, as you said, it draws this line between uh, law and policy – where it redraws a line between law and policy. I suppose that's the neo. Mm-hmm. Um, on on law, it's and you invite you invoke the recent work of Aditya Bamzai and also John Duffy and others, um, sort of reasserting judicial power in st- in step one of Chevron. Especially, you also, as you just pointed out, you judges would be less deferential in interpreting the stat the procedural statutes themselves, the APA mm-hmm. and other statutes. Um, but then that leaves, you say, on the other hand, judges to be more deferential than they currently are in things like arbitrary and capricious review, where you, you say, you point out that that the neoclassical approach to those questions would be, you know, reasonableness review, not not hard look, um, mm-hmm. as it's come to be known. It would be maybe soft look instead of hard look. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. Um, but, but um, and again, it turns down the, the constitutional temperature by 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 not sort of focusing so squarely on things like agency structure and agency uh, and the non-delegation problem. Although mm-hmm. interestingly, the same ju- the same justices and scholars who I think are the most likely to fall into this neoclassical category, including Kavanaugh, they do seem particularly interested in those non-delegation questions. Uh, mm-hmm. Kavanaugh had his recent um, separate opinion in in U.S. versus Paul at the, at the cert stage, where he, he sort of um, endorsed Gorsuch's own interest in non-delegation. In fact, Justice Kavanaugh, before he was a justice, gave a talk at AEI, um, where I am have an affiliation, um, praising Chief Justice Rehnquist's opinion in the old benzene case, mm-hmm. the, sort of one of the older non-delegation cases from the Reagan era. Um, so there is, there might be this interesting convergence over time, um, whether it's neo-skepticism, neo-neoclassical, whatever mm-hmm. it is. But I think over time, you really are going to have, at least among justices like Gorsuch and Kavanaugh, in the long run, this sort of interesting dialogue between the skeptics and the neoclassics. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think a lot of it will turn on, and, th- and there'll be interesting scholarship, hopefully, about this in the next couple of years, is um, how, first off, I guess two questions, how strong was the non-delegation doctrine, or how strong does, the, you know, how strong of a non-delegation doctrine does the Constitution 
original constitution uh, require, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, And there'll be heated debates about that. You have Julian Mortensen and Nick Bagley saying very little, and then it'll be an Elon Worman responding on that. Um, Mm -hmm. And then the question is, if there is a a, a vigorous non-delegation doctrine, um, the question will be, I think for at least someone who's inclined to a kind of formalism, um, is is there law to be uh, applied? Is is there, you know, the question will be, was was Justice Scalia too quick in saying this is something that's just not judicially manageable? Um, and so I think Gorsuch uh, was trying to lay the groundwork for an argument that there is law, uh, there is there can be law-like approaches to policing the non-delegation doctrine. Um, and if scholars can identify reasonably workable tests, um, uh, perhaps uh, a, a formalist who's worried about um, judicial incapacity to police the non-delegation doctrine um, might be a little bit less worried. Um, uh, so, but, but, but then there's the larger question about, um, and, 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 and this is maybe not something that uh, I, I guess a formalist in theory should be considering is, um, I guess, kind of judicial politics. Uh, or or judicial role, uh, and the question is if 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 you like a, a classic you know, separation of powers, and are you worried about delegations? Um, you know, our administrative state with substantial delegations has largely been a three branch enterprise, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, Congress passes delegates a bunch. Uh, the president is happy uh, to implement it, and the courts have been you know happy to go along go along with that. Uh, and the question, one, one question coming, coming about is, um, can one branch, uh, stop that, um, especially with a series of five, four decisions, um, can, uh, has the small C constitution, uh, of our Republic shifted such that, um, it's, it's, it's tricky or, I don't know if dangerous is the right word or uh, imprudent, uh, for courts to do this on their own. Uh, if if the rest of the body politic is comfortable uh, with 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 the dispensation that we have, or is the be- or is the better way, and this is where I think I, I, I lean in the paper, uh, is the better way um, to uh, for 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 the courts to essentially um, uh, stand up for the classical model by doing what they're very good at, uh, namely uh, applying the law, and uh, and if and, and if you're deferring on. Uh, wide swaths of delegation to agencies, um, you know, let people realize the consequences of their actions, uh, rather than, uh, accommodating it through, you know, procedural means or hard look or, 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 or something along those lines. Uh, and, and that's a big picture question, uh, question that's not, a, it's not a purely legal question. It's, it's not a legal question at all. It's more kind of a question of kind of high constitutional politics, uh, that I, as a law professor, I'm probably ill-equipped to, uh, to decide. You know, the the Supreme Court, um, we're recording this in the very beginning of May, and so the Supreme Court hasn't yet decided uh, the CELA case, the the constitutional challenge to the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. Mm -hmm. Um, Before the case was argued, I posted a a couple of notes up at SCOTUS blog and the Yale Journal on Regulation um, saying that, you know, before the judges, the justices could strike down these statutes that give some protection for the CFPB director against at-will removal by the president, that before they could strike down those those statutory protections as unconstitutional, they might need to stop and try to interpret them. 
right? <laughs> and and that and that they could well, and that they could you know cons- they could in a sense avoid the constitutional problem by construing those statutes as maybe a little bit less protective than we always assumed that they were, mm-hmm. right? By giving the president a little more leeway to fire, say, a CFPB director. Um, if and and then it, you know some of the justices evidently were thinking about that a similar question because um, I think Chief Justice Roberts and maybe one other asked that question at oral argument. You know, can't we just construe the statute in a way that avoids this? Now I think either Justice Gorsuch or Justice Kavanaugh seemed dissatisfied with with this, and so who knows how it'll come out. Mm-hmm. Where I'm going with this is if the court were to to sort of uphold the CFPB director's independence but by watering it down, which I think was how Gorsuch put it, mm-hmm. would that that would be more of a neoclassical approach, right? Yeah. So May- yes, I, I, yeah. I, I think so. In, in terms of kind of the the constitutional pragmatism, yeah, uh, for, for sure, right? Um, and, and the interesting question would be, or an interesting question about how pragmatic would be, is how plausible an interpretation of the statute, right? Um, actually, is if you're kind of if if you feel like you're kind of making it up or you're really straining. Uh, to avoid the constitutional uh, problem, uh, that that might be very different than saying actually there's a plausible interpretation of the statute that says um, there there is more control here. Uh, that's great. Uh, and and if there's I guess if there's a if there's a vibe of my paper, um, it's 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 pushing towards making administrative law more about ordinary law uh, than constitutional law. Uh, so like Adrian Vermeule and Eric Posner had this. You know, provocative paper when, I, when you and I were in law school called "Transitional Justice is Ordinary Justice." Like there, there's a, there's a big liter- body of literature on transitional justice and how it's different. And they say, well, no, it's actually not at all that different than everything else. Um, I'm I, I'm trying to make I'm I'm happy in a world where administrative law is primarily subconstitutional law. Mm-hmm. Uh, with uh, with legislatures doing things, uh, courts interpreting them, uh, and, uh, and and having the ordinary uh, ordinary give and take, uh, and and the less the less that can turn on the constitution, the better. And I guess it's funny when I teach admin law, um, I, you know, the the the, tar- the part I enjoy teaching least uh, is the first, I guess quarter of the class where we're doing the separation of power stuff uh, and the non-delegation stuff, not because I don't think that's important, not because I don't think it's real, because it's real and it's important, um, but it doesn't feel like real law uh, mm. in the way the APA stuff does uh, or, or or the judicial review stuff does. I, have an, I guess I have an allergy towards uh, free-floating balancing tests um, uh, that, that populate necessarily populate uh, a constitution with broad generalities. Uh, and the more we can make administrative law about close reading of legal texts, um, the happier I am. <laughs> now let's, let's close with just a, a, a few minutes on, on the reactions that this is, that your article is spurred. Mm-hmm. Um, the one, the most obvious one is the one that was published on the Harvard Law Review's website. Um, by, again, our friend Adrian Vermeule, it's titled Neo question mark. Mm-hmm. Um, and his basic point is that actually, uh, Professor Pojanowski isn't sketching out anything new. He really is only calling for a return to the line that was drawn a century ago in cases like Kroll v. Benson, this line between law and policy that wasn't tenable then and won't be tenable now. And and then he adds to that. There's also this, this distinction, um, or this framework sidesteps the problem of what he calls irreconcilable ambiguity, right? Mm -hmm. The fact that we have these old statutes written in a different era 
under different understandings. It's impossible to fix a, a, a single concrete meaning, uh, fix them to those statutes today in a very different contexts. And so ultimately you can't draw this line between, uh, again, between law and policy, because ultimately you just have ambiguous statutes that will be interpreted one way or the other with immense policy consequences. Mm-hmm. I'm just be curious for your, your, and I encourage our audience to, to look that, that paper up too. Again, it's called Neo question mark, um, by Adrian Vermeule. Um, uh, I'm just curious for for your thoughts on that or, or any other reactions that this has engendered. I know of at least one other leading um, administrative law professor who's who's working on a response, and and I think this this paper has really started a conversation. And so I'm curious uh, what you make of the conversation so far. Well, so uh, without surprise, I think Adrian has um, he's a very very smart guy uh, has hit on I think the, the crux of the matter. Um, but first off, with respect to its neo, there is a sense, and I, and I, and I hearken back to this in the paper, that it, it, it is a bit of a return to what just the compromise Justice Stone wanted to have in Kroll versus Benson, the separation between law and policy. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think what's neo about it, um, first off, it's neo relative to classical legal thought, uh, which is the baseline I'm thinking about, you know, the Dicean uh, constitutionalism. But I do think what's different about what's going on. Or, so one of Adrian's favorite arguments, and it's a good one, is that the Crowell versus Benson compromise is inherently unstable. The court tried to separate law and policy, and lo and behold, we got Chevron, we got our, we got, um, you know, this, this sharp, uh, this, this, you know, this compromise is just inherently unstable. Um, Part of my argument would be that it was unstable given its interpretive premises. Um, mm-hmm. If you have the kind of working legal realism purpose of this interpretation that uh, a lot of the New Deal um, scholars and jurists had, uh, of course that line doesn't make sense, right? If you're a pragmat, if you're if your approach to interpretation is like Bill Eskridge's uh, or a very strongly purpose of Hart and Sachs, your attempt to draw the line between law and policy is going to fail because your understanding of law by, by its very conception incorporates these policy trade-offs. Um, if, however, uh, the formalist distinction, or uh, if you're a textualist uh, who believes in the, at least the, a stronger or more sharply autonomous legal craft, um, that distinction can be more, in, more tenable in principle. Uh, but at the heart of the matter, which Adrian gets to, and this is, and this is just a deeper jurisprudential uh, difference um, is whether that formalist distinction, it, whether the formalist project is tenable, uh, whether it's in fact smuggling in policy judgments uh, or is simply just not workable. Uh, and if that's right, uh, then my framework co- uh, and, and the formalist project collapses. Uh, and and that's just a bit, I don't know if it's an empirical question or if that's just a question of deep jurisprudential disagreement, uh, but I think that's the one to have. And I think a lot of how you feel about um, administrative law and separation of powers in the, in the judicial function is going to turn on this jur- jurisprudential question or, or, or about, you know, interpretive methodology. Um, and, and and I think how we feel about that uh, will go to his response about, you know, is there irreconcilable ambiguity with respect to a lot of these old statutes? Um, and 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 I, I guess I feel, and I guess I'd have to, I'd have to kind of take it on a statute-by-statute basis. I mean, if the statute says do something in the public interest, uh, and the public interest is not a term of art with, you know, that legal materials can have you know, traction on, well, that's, you know, I, I, you know, that's, uh, 
that's arbitrary and capricious land, and that's going to be pretty deferential. Um, if, however, there's, uh, you know, uh, if you actually go back uh, as a sidetrack, if you actually go back, I went, I went to, um, uh, before I was going to present this paper at Harvard, in the belly of the beast, where Agent Vermeule and John Manning were laying in wait, people who disagree with me from different sides. Um, uh, I went back and read Chevron, but then I went to the D.C. Circuit opinion, and then I went back to the Alabama power decision that, that, that the D.C. Circuit relied on Chevron, yeah. uh, and Skelly Wright, whether opportunistically or not, made a really good formalist argument that the bubble, that the bubble concept isn't good, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and, if you, and if you can kind of go back to the EPA, I know Justice Stevens says, look, if it's hard, I defer. Well, you know, I went back, I, re- I read the Alabama power decision, and I think, uh, I think it was, uh, was Skelly, I think it was Skelly Wright, I forget whoever it was. There is a really good textualist argument that the bubble concept didn't make sense in, in the context of that statute, right. uh, and I don't have a particular stake in whether or not the EPA uh, should use the bubble concept or not. But I, I read the I read the argument, and I was like reasonably persuadable, persuaded huh. uh, on lawyers' terms. And so maybe there isn't irreconcilable ambiguity. Uh, so I don't know. That, uh, and, and in terms of broader response, I think. Um, I think one thing that, that's interesting people in it is not necessarily my argument uh, for the neoclassical position, although I think some people think it's interesting. Um, I do think uh, people have found uh, the typologies I've, uh, I've identified uh, and, the jur- and, cl- and, and clarifying the jurisprudential underpinnings beneath those approaches uh, as really helpful. So mm-hmm. even, if you, even if you don't buy what I'm selling uh, with respect to the particular method, um, I do think, uh, the paper and this, in this aspect of the paper is kind of a product of thinking about this stuff for 10 years and teaching jurisprudence and teaching admin. Um, I do think that's going to be helpful, um, for uh, helping people identify why they sit, where they sit, uh, and, and considering where they sit, uh, in light of those particular, uh, interpretive and jurisprudential commitments. Well, I'm looking forward to the the conversations that follow from this. But in the meantime, uh, Jeff, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. And thanks to all of our listeners. I just want to close on a note. Um, People who have been tuning into our podcast know that most of the audio that's come out um, in our podcast has been, been, or most of the, the, the podcast episodes has been audio from our public events. Um, throughout the summer, as we sort of get reached the end of that, we're going to be releasing more episodes like this, more one-on-one conversations. And in addition to that, a number of the public conferences and other events that had originally been scheduled for the spring and that were postponed or canceled due to the COVID-19 outbreak are going to be repurposed, um, in, into podcast conversations where we'll bring together the authors who had written at previous roundtables who are going to present their papers at the conferences and, and now can't because they've been canceled canceled. We're going to invite them onto this podcast to have discussions like this and with other commenters as, as guests as well. So please stay tuned for more episodes like this. And until next time, thank you for joining us.